I want to turn our Bibles this morning, first of all, to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. I want to read beginning at verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly. Mine honor, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, if you will, turn back to Genesis chapter 34. Genesis chapter 34 and verse 1. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. And his soul clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the damsel and spake kindly unto the damsel. And Shechem spake unto his father Hamor, saying, Get me this damsel to wife. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask you to open our hearts to your word today. We pray that you might, that we might allow your spirit to show us the things here that we need to see. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're continuing our study of Israel's final words to his sons, words that are prophetic in nature because they tell us what will befall his sons in the last days. And because those who were saved today are Abraham's seed, Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, and because Israel's words are part of the things that were written aforetime, that were written for our learning that are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come, then those words have a direct application to us in this hour. So far we have looked at Israel's words to Judah, to looked at his words to Reuben, and we're currently looking at Israel's words to his sons Simeon and Levi, who he mentions together. And he does that because of an incident that Israel references in the verses that we read this morning back in Genesis chapter 49. And we've come here to Genesis 34 because it's in this chapter that we find the reason why on this this man's deathbed, when we would expect him to have a a positive tone, a, a tone of family unity. It's here that we find the reason for Israel's sharp words 
of rebuke for these two sons. The incident that we're reading about here centers around Dinah, the only daughter that Jacob had, and a prince by the name of Shechem. We have noted in our previous studies, and we want to emphasize again, that the events here in chapter 34 have to be viewed through two things. First of all, they have to be viewed in the context of the last days, and therefore viewed as applying to us personally and individually. And then they have to be viewed through the last three verses of chapter 33. In these three verses, we see Jacob. We don't see Israel's name there. We see Jacob because the flesh, the old nature, is alive and well and in control of Jacob and in control of the circumstances here. Jacob is living like so many who name the name of Christ in this hour. He's living a life of compromise and worldliness. We see that in the fact that he has his tent. That's a good thing. He has his tent that speaks of the pilgrim character of the believer here in the world. He has an altar that speaks to us of worship, that speaks to us of the cross of Calvary. But Jacob has these things before the city of Shalem. He has his tent and he has his altar, but he has it before this place that is the center of man's way and man's order and man's philosophy of secular humanism. Jacob's life and the life of his family is is a mixture. It's a mixture of the tent and the altar and the city. Jacob's life and the life of his family is a mixture of Christianity and worldliness as they live a life that attempts to embrace Christ and embrace the world. And that can't be done. We cannot serve two masters. James 4 and verse 4 says, Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And the corollary of that statement is true. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of God will be the enemy of the world. You can't have it both ways. And yet that's what Jacob and that's what so many believers today are trying to do. We get a glimpse into how low Jacob and his family have sunk when they finally do leave Shalem. Look at chapter 35, if you will, in verse 1. And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. Then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean. And change your garments, and let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. 
And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand and all their earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. Jacob says to his household, put away the strange gods that are among you. Be clean. Change your garments. And we read there that they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods that were in their hand and all the earrings which were in their ears. Jacob's household had taken up the strange gods that were worshipped in the city of Shalem. But that's not all. Jacob tells them to change their garments. That suggests that Jacob's family, the one with the tent, the one with the altar, were dressing like the people of the city. And that included the earrings that they were wearing. I think it's worth mentioning here that the mention of earrings is not a positive one. The first mention of earrings in the Bible is in Genesis 24. Let's turn back there just for a second. It's, it's, it's not very far. If you'll look back at, at Genesis chapter 24, and you remember what is going on here. Abraham has sent his eldest servant back to his country, to his kindred, to find a bride for Isaac. And he finds her, and when he knows that this is the girl that the Lord has chosen, notice what he does in verse 22. And it came to pass, as the camels had done drinking, that the man took a golden earring of half a shekel weight and two bracelets for her hands of ten shekels weight of gold. Now, and said, Whose daughter art thou? Tell me, I pray thee. Is there room in thy father's house for us to lodge in? And so, look at verse 29. And Rebekah had a brother, and his name was Laban. And Laban ran out unto the man, unto the whale. And it came to pass when he saw the earring and bracelets upon his sister's hand, and when he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, Thus spake the man unto me, that he came unto the man, and behold, he stood by the camels at the well. And then in verse 47 we read, the, the, the servant is relating to her family what has taken place. And he said, I asked her and said, Whose daughter art thou? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bare unto him. And I put the earring upon her face and the bracelets upon her hands. This is the first time that we find the word earring in the Bible. And what we want to notice at this first mention of this word is that the first person that we're told to wear an earring in the Bible was a woman, Rebecca. We've learned in this church over the years that the first mention of something in the Bible is of singular importance. And at the first mention of this word earring, it's not a man who is wearing it. It's a man who's giving it. Fellas, Christmas is only a few weeks away. Uh, you might want to think about that. It's not a man who's wearing the earring. It's a man who's giving the earring to a woman. 
to the woman who was going to be his master, uh, Isaac's wife. That settles the issue for me. Earrings are not to be worn by men. They're to be worn by women. Now, the next time that we find uh, the the word uh, earring is in the verse that we read a moment ago in Genesis 35 and verse 4, if you'll turn back there. Jacob has told his household to put away the strange gods, change their garments, change their clothes. In other words, he's telling them to change the way you look. Change the way you look. And they gave Jacob the strange gods, and they took the earrings out of their ears. And I'll tell you who I believe did that. It was Jacob's sons. When their father told them to change their garments, they gave Jacob the earrings that were in their ears. Some of us grew up in the 60s. And because of that, we understand something of the origin of men wearing earrings in this country. A homosexual who wanted to come out of the closet and make his perversion known wore an earring in his left ear. When they were condemned for doing that, then there were sympathetic straight men who began to wear earring in their right ear. And so this was a way of a nonverbal way of showing support um, and making a statement that they believed homosexuality was just an alternative lifestyle and it should be tolerated, should be accepted. The male earring in America has never been anything more than a statement of rebellion. It doesn't matter who wears it. Michael Jordan certainly helped to popularize it 30 years ago. And all that that has done is to increase the number of participants who wear them, who know nothing about the origins of the symbol. After Michael Jordan appeared with his earring, it just swept the world of professional athletes, college athletes, Watch the interviews of those who play the games now. You'll see earrings in their ears. And, of course, if it sweeps the world of professional sports, then it certainly is going to sweep the rest of the country, and it has. But it doesn't matter who wears them. It doesn't matter how popular they are. It's still rebellion, just as it was here in Genesis 34. The fashion of the city of Shalem was a particular kind of clothing, and the fad of the city, the thing that was popular, was for men to wear earrings. And Jacob tells his sons, get them out. Change your garments. There are fathers, Christian fathers, who need to tell their sons the same thing. Change your garments. Lay down your rebellion. Get the earrings out of your ears. Stop trying to look like the people of the city of this world. And you can tell them that on the authority of the Word of God based on the pattern of Genesis chapter 24 where the first earring was given to a woman and worn by a woman. And Exodus 32, we're not going to turn there, but it's interesting that... um, 
The next time we read about earrings after Genesis 24 is Exodus 32. Here, earrings are associated with idolatry, and they're associated with idolatry and rebellion in Exodus chapter 32. Because you remember Moses has gone up on the mound. He's been gone for 40 days, 40 nights. And the people of Israel come to Aaron and they say, Make us gods, for is this Moses? We don't know what's become of him. And what did Aaron tell them to do? Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters. The Bible tells us that Aaron took those earrings and he made a golden calf for the people to worship. Idolatry. That's what the earrings were associated with there. It's what they're associated with here. And so I believe on the authority of the word of God and the history of the symbol here in America, men who name the name of Christ don't need to be wearing earrings. But Jacob's sons were not the only ones who were affected by the fashion of the city. Jacob's daughter Dinah, no doubt, conformed to the fashion of the daughters of the city. And that's what compromise will always do. You know, we're so hard-headed. We're so hard-headed. God gives us all of these examples in the Bible of what compromise does, and yet somehow we think, well, you know, it's not going to happen that way to us. We're going to be different, but we're not going to be different. Compromise will always bend. Compromise will always point our hearts toward the world toward the world's philosophy, toward the world's way of thinking, toward the world's way of acting and talking and dressing. The sin of chapter 34 didn't just happen. The sin of chapter 34 is the result of a pattern of thought. It's the result of a pattern of life. And what we see here is that instead of the city of Shalem being one to the tent and the altar, instead of the city of Shalem being one to El Elohi Israel, that's what Jacob called his altar that he erected outside of the city. The name of that altar means God, the God of Israel. But instead of the people of, of that city being one to God, the God of Israel, Jacob's household was one to the strange gods and the clothing and the earrings and the fads and the fashions of that city. And it will ever be that way, folks. The end of compromise, the results of compromise, the place where it leads has not changed in almost 4,000 years, and it never will change. It never will change. We are not an exception to the rule. We cannot compromise. We will not win the world or anybody through compromising. It just will not happen. We need to learn that. We need to learn that as individual believers. We need to learn it as a body of believers. And so it's through the compromise and the, the friendship of the world, the friendship with this city of the world that we see the last three verses of chapter 33, the kind of compromise that characterizes the last days. 
That's how we're to view chapter 34. And it's in this context of compromise that Dinah goes to see the daughters of the land. Dressed in the garments, dressed in the clothes, dressed like the daughters of the land. Dressed, no doubt, immodestly, provocatively to show herself, to be seen. As we mentioned last week, not by the daughters of the land, no mention of any contact with them here, but by the sons of the land, and specifically to be seen by the prince of the land, a young man by the name of Shechem. Dinah's not innocent here. This account is not only about a big bad boy named Shechem, it's about a big bad girl named Dinah. She's equally guilty. We talked about these things in, in, in detail last week. And we just wanted to touch on them again today because there's another point that we want to see in verses 2 through 4 in chapter 34 that's relevant to the last days. Notice again verse 2. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, saw her. The sin that we're fixing to read about here in verse 2. The disastrous consequences that follow this sin in the rest of this chapter began with a look. A look. When Shechem saw Dinah, there was something in what he saw that appealed to his flesh. And I believe that's why verse 2 of chapter 35 is so important. Jacob tells his household, and that would include Dinah. He tells them to change your garments, change your clothes. Jacob's household had on the wrong kind of clothing. Dinah had on the wrong kind of clothing. I believe that Dinah's garments, Dinah's dress, caused Shechem to fasten on her to give attention to her. That's what the word saw means. To gaze at, to look at, to give attention to. And it means something else. It means to find out. To find out. Dinah's garments, her dress, caused Shechem to want to find out about Dinah. And what did he want to find out? He wanted to find out if her actions would match her dress. Shechem wanted to find out if Donna, or rather Dinah, would live up to the message that her dress was sending. Ladies, young ladies, your garments, your dress sends out a message. Vivian Woodward Westwood, I'm sorry, Vivian Westwood was a British fashion designer. She died last year at the age of 81. Sky Arts is a British television channel dedicated to the arts, as you can see from the name. It ranked her as the fourth most influential artist in Britain. 
in the last 50 years. And what was her art? Fashion. Fashion was her art. Vivian Woodward said, I think fashion is the strongest form of communication there is. I think fashion is the strongest form of communication there is. Margaret Kent wrote a book called How to Marry the Man of Your Choice. And she says to women, don't let the power of clothing pass you by. In other words, she agrees with Vivian Westwood. Don't let the power of clothing pass you by, for it can be a major asset in attracting men. Stir his sexual imagination without satisfying his curiosity about your body. Wear clothing that follows the natural form of your body. Folks, that's exactly what women are wearing today. Clothing that follows the natural form of the body. Even women who are expecting. I don't, I, I don't know about you. It's disgusting to me to see a woman who is expecting a child with something on that conforms to every single bulge and curve that she has. Jeans. Jeans. Mrs. Kent says, are likely to get a positive response because they are snug and outline the body. They also represent casualness. Leggings in our day certainly fall into this category. There's even something called jeggings. I guess that's the best of both worlds. Jeans and leggings that conform to the natural form of your body, that fit snug and outline the body. McCall's Magazine, 30 years ago. So we're not talking about a pattern of thought that has just come along. There was an article that said, what your intimate behavior says about you. The article says the female legs have also been the subject of considerable male interest as sexual signaling devices. The mere exposure of leg flesh has been sufficient to transmit sexual signals. Needless to say, the higher the exposure goes, the more stimulating it becomes. You see, Vivian Woodward is exactly right. Fashion is the strongest form of communication there is. What message, ladies, what message, young ladies, is your fashion communicating? What kind of message are the garments that you are wearing, how, what kind of message is it sending? Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9, In like manner also, that women adorned themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness. That word... Shamefacedness means bashfulness or shyness. It means reverence. Reverence. 
In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with reverence. Reverence toward God. And that word also means with regard for others. That's the men around you who see you. So I want you to think about something. Reverence toward God. Regard for the people around you. If you think about it, that forms a cross, doesn't it? Reverence toward God forms the vertical upright or the vertical beam of that cross. Regard for others forms the horizontal beam. Ladies, if you're saved, this is a cross upon which the fashion of the world is to be crucified to you and upon which you are to be crucified to the fashion of this world. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. This is modest dress. It's dress that honors and glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. It's dress that draws attention to the face. It's dress that does not draw the eyes to the breast or the behind or the legs or anywhere else on the body. Dinah's garments, the garments of that city, drew attention to her body. It caused Shechem to gaze and to look and to give attention to her. It caused him to want to find out if Dinah would live up to the message that her garments were sending. And you read this second verse here. You can't help but wonder how different things would have been if instead of telling his household, if instead of telling Dinah in chapter 35 and verse 2 to change her garments after the fact, if Jacob would have told her to change her garments in chapter 34 and verse 1 before she went out. But Jacob is silent. We don't hear anything out of him. Fathers, you're the head of the house. God has given you that authority. And you need to exercise it. You know what modest dress is. And when you see your daughter dressing immodestly, speak up. Speak up. Don't fall into the trap of saying, well, I, I let my wife handle that. You know, my, my daughter's not a little girl anymore. And that's fine. As long as you and your wife are on the same page about modesty. But even then, you're the final authority. And you need to exercise that authority because your wife may be weak. Your wife may be reliving her own rebellion and revisiting the days of her own youth in the life of your daughter. That can happen. It can happen in Christian homes. Don't be like Jacob in chapter 34 and hold your peace. Be like Jacob in chapter 35. And tell your daughter. And if you need to, tell your wife. Change your garments. We don't want to look like the world. God's given you that authority and he'll hold you accountable 
for how you use it. What we have in Genesis 33 and 34 is a family. It's a Christian family in crisis. Jacob's family, one of the patriarchs of the Jewish nation, the man for whom the nation is named, Israel. This is the family that we're reading about and talking about that's in crisis. And what we have here in this Christian family is a silent father, Jacob, and a complicit mother, Leah. That is a recipe for a crisis, folks. It is a recipe for disaster. And Genesis chapter 34 is a disaster. But the good news is that the story of Jacob's family doesn't end in chapter 34. Look at chapter 35 again in verse 1. And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up. Go up. The city of this world is always down. It's always down. The direction of compromise is always down. And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Bethel means house of God. Jacob needed to get back to the house of God. He needed to take his family back to the house of God. If you see a Christian family in crisis... You're seeing a family that needs to get back to Bethel. It, it, it would be amazing if you could conduct such a survey, but to find, to see how many families in crisis are also families who've stopped coming to church. They've stopped coming to church. If you see a family in crisis, they need to get back to Bethel. You're seeing a family that needs to get back to the house of God. And something that's very important to notice here. The house of God was a specific place. God doesn't tell Jacob, arise, go up to the house of God that you choose. He doesn't tell Jacob to arise and go up and you find the best house of God that you can. The one that's, that, that's closest, the one that's convenient. You choose the best one you can. No, it's not what God does. He tells Jacob to go to a specific place. He tells him to go to a specific house of God. Jacob, it's the place where I appeared to you when you fled from Esau. God has a specific place. He had a specific place that he wanted Jacob to go. And folks, he hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. If you're saved today, here in these last days, God has a Bethel for you. He has a specific house of God where He wants you. And He wants you there because of the message that's preached. God wants the message of the house of God to be the message that is preached in the home. And what is that message? Well, look at verse 2 of chapter 35. Then Jacob said unto his household, and to all that were with him, put away the strange gods that are among you. And be clean and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. They gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand and all the earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. When the message of the house of God 
becomes the message of the Christian home, then the crisis will cease. The crisis will cease. One of the great problems in the homes of Christians today is the disparity between the messages. The disparity between the message that is preached in the house of God and the message that's preached in the home. There's a difference. And what we're teaching our children is that yes, we go and yes, we listen to the message in the house of God. But when we leave the house of God, we leave that message there. We're teaching them that the church is one thing. Real life is another. We're teaching them that the, the, the word of God is fine there, but we don't need it out here. It gives it this, this, this disparity that creates a serious problem in the minds of our children. What we need this morning is for the message that's preached in the house of God to be believed and preached and lived in the house where we live. And the message is, put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. Change your garments. May the Lord help us this morning to allow that message that's preached here in his word, that's preached here in this church, allow that message to be believed and preached and lived in the house where we are. Now, we've been talking to Christians this morning. If you're here today and you're lost, your need is to be saved. All of these things that we've talked about begin with salvation. They begin when you put away the strange gods that are among you. Self, that's the, our favorite god. Our favorite strange god is ourself. They begin... Salvation begins when you change your garments. Elisha Hoffman wrote about that in a hymn. We love to sing it. Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's the way, the only way that you can be clean. You can be washed in the blood of the Lamb this morning, right where you are. If you'll put away the strange God, if you'll come to the end of yourself, humble your heart, take your place as a sinner, and ask the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. And He will. He'll give you a complete change of garments. He'll give you with the garment of his righteousness. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. And we pray that you would speak to our hearts from it today. We're living in such deceptive times. We're living in days of, of compromise. When it's the popular thing to do. Father, we pray that we would see again this morning the place where compromise always leads. It always leads downward. It always leads away from you. 
We pray that you would help us to stand true to you as individuals, and we pray that you would help us to stand true to you as a body of believers. And Father, we pray if there are any here who are lost today, that they would see that you've made provision for them to change their garments through the blood of the cross of Calvary. And they can be clothed in your righteousness today. They'll humble their heart and trust you as their Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.